Good evening, and welcome to the Independent News Hour. I'm your host, John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of the Independent, New York City's lefty newspaper and website. We're online at independent.org, I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-E-N-T dot O-R-G. Our latest print edition is also uh, out around the city in our red and white news boxes in public libraries and many other venues. I will be joined shortly by my co-host, Amber Gagarian. So, Actually, um, I'm here now. Hi, John. Okay. It's great to be here with you, and welcome to all of our listeners on 99.5 FM and streaming on WBAI.org. Great. Well, we have another uh, fantastic show today. We're going to hear from organizers of a union drive at a Starbucks Amazon Go store in Times Square. On Friday, they filed paperwork with the National Labor Relations Board to hold a union election. It would be the first retail store at Times Square to unionize. And later in the show, we'll speak to a member of Mexicanos Unidos, which is a mostly young-led group of Mexican-Americans in Sunset Park that formed during the George Floyd uprisings in 2020 and have been hosting a weekly plaza open-air market in Sunset Park that's really great, and we'll talk all about that. But first, I want to remind everyone that we that we will be hosting an election night special edition of the Independent News Hour next Tuesday from 5 to 10 p.m., over the course of the night, we'll be joined by special guests, including WBAI's Linda Sarsour, Tom Robbins, and Ben Max, Assemblymember Farah Soufrant Forrest, acclaimed Marxist feminist scholar Linda Martine Alkoff, Julie Holler from Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, and many others. We will also have live in-the-field reports from here in New York City, and we will hear from grassroots organizers in key battleground states where the fate of the U.S. House and Senate will be decided. Again, that's next Tuesday from 5 to 10 p.m. here on WBAI, an election night special of the Independent News Hour. And speaking of electoral politics and the struggle against fascism, we're going to spend the next few minutes talking about the latest uh, electoral news from New York to Brazil. And first, the good news. On Sunday, leftist presidential candidate Luis Ignacio da Silva, a.k.a. known as Lula, narrowly defeated Brazil's far-right president, Jair Bolsonaro, by a margin of 51 to 49. Bolsonaro has so far refused to acknowledge Lula's victory, and his supporters are currently engaging in more than 250 highway blockades across the country. However, speaking earlier today, Bolsonaro said that he would follow all the orders and prescriptions of the Constitution, while his top aides have said an orderly transition would begin. Lula's victory was swiftly recognized by the White House and a number of Latin American countries and leaders around the world. Here's the reaction from one of Lula's supporters who lives in Niteroi, which is in the north of Rio de Janeiro, and who voted for Lula and has loved him. Nós vivemos o que o que nós vivemos em quatro anos de governo neste governo de Jair Bolsonaro foi como se fosse um... We were living in a country of suffering in the last four years during Bolsonaro's presidency. He had no compassion for Brazil during the COVID pandemic. The people who lost family members, like my brother who died because of his denial of the virus. He wasn't the president for the people, he was a president for the rich, the consumer market. Under his power, there was no dedication to public health, education, or any of the labor forces in Brazil. 
Lula won this election because he appealed to the Brazilian people that Bolsonaro had forgotten about. Lula won this election because he appealed to the Brazilian people that Bolsonaro had forgotten about. The northern Brazilians, the majority of Brazilians living in favelas in our major cities, the people who believe in equity in education. Yes, yes, it's our president. Lula, I'm so happy, happy, happy. Don't, I, I don't believe it. I'm so happy. So happy. So that was Regina Bueno, a lifetime citizen of Rio de Janeiro and a committed leftist. Lula is due to be sworn in on January 1st. The former leader of the Metal Workers Union, Lula served two terms as president from 2003 to 2010. His generous welfare programs lifted tens of millions of Brazilians out of poverty, and he left office with an 80% approval rating. His election is also expected to be good news for the Amazon jungle and rainforest and its indigenous inhabitants, both of which have come under relentless assault from Bolsonaro-backed agribusiness interests. Lula has vowed to meet with conservationists. The Amazon is the world's largest rainforest and the quote-unquote lungs of the planet. Their continued devastation under Bolsonaro would have had a devastating climate, would has, has devastating climate consequences and, and would continue. Right. And this time, Lula comes into office at the head of a broad anti-Bolsonaro coalition that encompasses political parties from the left to the center right. So how he will govern remains to be seen. Right, John. And, and what we're seeing at this time is is that in politics, the strength of the far right movements like Bolsonaro's and Trump's here in the U.S. forces the left to make alliances with the center. And those alliances are full of contradictions. And here in the U.S., the midterm elections will be held next Tuesday. Early voting is underway in many states, including New York, which began on Saturday. A fully Trumpified Republican Party is looking to regain control of the House and Senate, as well as to cement, cement its control in a half dozen swing states from Pennsylvania to Arizona. They'll play a key role in determining the fate of the 2024 presidential election. One of the unexpectedly close races this cycle is taking place here in New York, where the latest polls show incumbent Democratic Governor Kathy Hochul only narrowly leading Republican Lee Zeldin. Here are the two candidates making their closing arguments as the race enters as the race enters its final days. This is our moment, women, to rise up and to say, not here, not ever. This is New York. We're protecting our rights. We keep your God in hands off our bodies. We have to be strong. We have to be aggressive. We can leave nothing to chance. We know that our daughters and granddaughters will have fewer rights than we do if we don't rise up. I can't help the Supreme Court right now. I haven't helped them. But right now, I have to save New York. And that means we fight, we stand up, we vote, we march. There is a crime emergency right now in New York State. This governor is unwilling to call it for what it is. Many of her allies unwilling to call it for exactly what it is. Instead, the public is being told that they shouldn't even believe what they're seeing with their own eyes. With the videos and the pictures and the news reports day in and day out. They want to be told from elected officials what they are going to do to solve it completely. We want boldness. We want courage. And that means that on day one, 
we will declare a crime emergency in the state of New York. And that was Zeldin speaking on October 24th um, in front of Rikers Island with the Correctional Officers Benevolent Association. New Yorkers have not elected a Republican governor in 20 years. John, why do you think this year is different? Well, Zeldin is definitely leaning into a, a anti-crime message that Eric Adams had a lot of success with last year in his uh, mayor's race. He may uh, be benefiting from sort of the ground that uh, Adams already tilled uh, Adams did a very convincing job of frightening many New Yorkers. I think it's worth noting that while obviously violent crime is a tragedy for anybody who's affected by it and all the people in their lives, the when the murder rate did increase in New York City during the pandemic in 2020, um, the, the level it reached was still lower than what it was uh, during Michael Bloomberg's three terms in office when New York City was hailed as the safest a big city in the nation, and Bloomberg's crime-fighting fr- prowess uh, was also widely hailed. So there is a, a propaganda element to what we're seeing mm-hmm. here, uh, and and it's turning out to be uh, fairly effective. Uh, uh, Zeldin was down by as much as 24 points in one poll in August. Uh, the most recent polls that came out on the weekend had him down uh, six uh, about six points. There was one poll that came out in, uh, I believe, yesterday or today that showed them tied, though that's a, a polling service that tends to tilt uh, toward the Republicans in their sort of the uh, out, output they they, they generate. Mm-hmm. But undoubtedly, Zeldin has like greatly closed the race. In, in recent yeah. governor's elections, uh, Democrats have won, you know, by 15, 20 points, uh, you know, r- with very little uh, effort. But I think it's also important to remember that the people of New York City voted five consecutive times for Mayor Giuliani and Bloomberg. Uh, Republicans, I mean, Bloomberg later claimed he was an independent, but he was essentially uh, a plutocrat that believed in, uh, you know, very stern law and order uh, politics. And, and New York City residents, where the, the voters are overwhelmingly Democratic, voted for these kind of people five times in a row, then uh, pivoted to de Blasio, and then last year uh, elected uh, Eric Adams, a former police captain and someone who uh, – was once a Republican himself. So uh, New York City may not be as uh, liberal as its reputation, and and, uh, and Zeldin is trying to take advantage of that. Yeah, I mean, MAGA with Gavin McGinnis has founding ties in New York City. So um, absolutely. And and also, I mean, you know, Hochul – uh, has really like many Democrats across the country, you know, has tried to lean into the uh, the issue of uh, abortion rights, and uh, has emphasized her determination to preserve New York State uh, as a bastion of of pro choice uh, uh, abortion rights. Uh, but that message doesn't seem to be uh, energizing uh, her potential voters as much, at least from what we're seeing in the polls. And uh, I was wondering what, why you think that is. I mean, obviously the the Dobbs decision from the Supreme court was hugely unpopular, but. You know, I'm not sure exactly, but thinking about sort of the uh, general public's reaction and consciousness, I think I'll say two things. One is that um, 
people tend to be in some sense of denial, right? Maybe people particularly in the center and the left, um, things suck, but there's nothing we can do about it. And it will never get that bad. I remember being at election parties in 2016 for Trump and up to the very last minute, people were like, oh, Hillary's winning and Hillary's winning. So I think there's the aspect of denial. In New York, we still have the right to abortion. There's this idea that in New York, people's uh, and social programs are untouchable. Um, but as you've said, everything is always subject to change. And I think the other thing is that just like we all have ingrained racism in us, um, even if we're anti-racist, we all have ingrained sexism in us, even if we're anti-sexist, if we're feminist, women have ingrained sexism. So that does come to play. And I think the hatred towards Clinton and other female Republicans, it, it, it's not that it's unwarranted. All, public, all politicians should be critiqued, but there is some clear sexism underlying those those critiques of women politicians so it's going to be harder for any woman in a race right now uh, i mean hokel's race is drawing uh, some comparisons to the the clinton trump contest of 2016 where uh, clinton was heavily favored uh, she had the fundraising advantages most of the uh, prominent endorsements uh and uh trump you know uh, ran a very vitriolic campaign managed to demonize uh, clinton and of course she uh, shot herself in the in the foot many times in in many ways. Um, so I mean, one of the things that's been striking about Hochul's campaign is sort of uh, how uh, unfocused it has been uh, for most of the time. And she's run a lot of television ads. She has a war chest of forty million dollars. Um, yeah, you know, I came across a tweet yesterday from a a, a self described political junkie uh, by the name of Russell Drew in Forest Hills, where he wrote. Uh, regarding Hochul's campaign. And this is somebody who's a very ardent Democrat. Uh, no texts, no phone calls, zero campaign volunteers in my neighborhood. Uh, no idea what the uh, Hochul campaign is doing. I vote in every damn election. Maybe they think I'm a waste of resources. I ha- However, I have gotten a few messages from the Working Families Party. And I can say in my neighborhood, I haven't seen any indication that an election is about to happen. And- I haven't on either side of things, but I surely agree that I uh, Hochul is campaigning in the public eye less than Zeldin is. Um, you can notice that from just following their campaigns and following their social media. But we will continue to follow this story in the coming week and on the Independent News Hours election night special next Tuesday from 5 to 10 p.m. here on 99.5 FM WBAI. And we're going to take a very short break and we will be back with more. That was the people of Rio de Janeiro on Saturday at a rally for Lula da Silva the day before he was elected president of Brazil. You are listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM. I'm your host, John Tarleton, here with my co-host, Amigo Garian. And now in our next segment, we're going to uh, turn to 
uh, uh, labor union organizing. Uh, Amazon and Starbucks workers have been at the forefront of a surge in labor union organizing in this country over the last uh, year or so. And uh, on Friday, a star, a, a, a store that is both a Starbucks and an Amazon store in, in uh, Times Square. Uh, their workers announced that they were filing uh, for union recognition. And uh, we, we're going to hear more about that today. Uh, this would be the first ever unionized uh, retail store in the Times Square area, which, of course, is a, a sort of a symbol of uh, uh, consumerism and American capitalism uh, with all its uh, glittering uh, 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 advertisements and all of that beaming down on everybody who walks through there. And uh, today we're going to be uh, joined by uh, two worker organizers uh, uh, with the uh, Starbucks Workers uh, United, uh, uh, Grayson Lee and Hal uh, uh, Bacchus. Uh, welcome both of you to the Independent News Hour. Hi, hello. Hi, thank you. Sure. Uh, so, uh, uh, Grayson, let's uh, start with you. Uh, can you describe, first of all, this new concept, uh, Starbucks pickup Amazon Go store you are working at, and what kind of responsibility you and your coworkers are expected to carry out? Um, so our store layout is kind of like this. We have a Starbucks pickup, mobile pickup section in the front and then the back section is an Amazon Go market and then uh, a lounge slash cafe area. Um, the two sections are separated by these smart technology gates that will accept um, payment from either a credit card or your Amazon Go app. Um, and we kind of have to um, do all the regular duties that a Starbucks barista has to do and also help customers navigate this Amazon Go section and all the um, kind of cleaning, uh, inventory stocking, um, food production of the Amazon section as well and offer the same amount of pay. And in the letter announcing your intent to unionize, you cite the layout of the store as a major source of frustration. Can you can you talk about that and describe some of the other working conditions that you found intolerable? Uh, so, yeah, the way that the store was built, it was meant to be a kind of a mobile pickup um, Amazon uh, to go. So you're supposed to be able to walk in, um, order your coffee on your mobile Starbucks app, and then, you know, grab something quick from Amazon Go and leave. Um, but the place that we are located, the Times Square building in Times Square, sorry, the New York Times building in Times Square, mm -hmm. um, it's obviously a lot of tourists. Yeah. And um, they are not so quick to buy into that concept. Obviously, you know, they don't want to have to download these apps from another country and um, their credit card might not work in the United States. So it can be very frustrating to uh, organize the crowd in the lobby area. Um, it can be very confusing where to go. Uh, also, just the layout of our store in general, it's extremely narrow and hard to navigate, um, especially in comparison to the volume that we deal with every day. Uh, there's basically room for maybe two people to walk back and forth, um, back of house. And uh, every time we go to get um, stock, there's these two uh, really hot ovens that we use to heat the Amazon food that are in the way. And people have already been burned by that oven. Uh, and it's just kind of a dangerous 
situation. Um, there's not really a lot of space to navigate and there's a lot of frustration every day about it. Right. Now, uh, how, uh, bringing you into the conversation, uh, this store opened in July. Uh, when did you all begin talking among yourselves about organizing a union? Uh, how did that uh, come together? And why did you all think forming a union uh, could help you? Uh, yeah, you can hear me, right? Oh, yeah. Here you oh, good. Beautiful. beautiful. Um, so the store has opened, the, opened around July. Um, me and Grayson are from the original store and um, a store um, by Rockefeller. Um, we were actually both involuntarily chosen by our manager and district manager to be moved over to this new Amazon store. It was framed in a way that was like, oh, best of the best are being sent to the store, great opportunities. Um, even though we were both incredibly reluctant, as we were both happy with our hours, our store environment, um, we were displaced and moved to this new store without any um, asking if we would be able to commute there properly, if um, there were train lines there for us um, to get there safely. Um they just really shipped us over there. Um, so we had already had this contingency towards um, the corporation as well as being um, sent to essentially the epicenter of anti-work, anti-union um, companies, Amazon and Starbucks. Um, that being said, we um, expressed our frustrations with each other and another longtime coworker from another close store who was, you know, put at the store, um, Aaron. And we kind of were like, hey, like there's a lot of stuff that is not going well and these growing pains are not going away. Um, everyone at the store is very unhappy and we also have to do an immense amount of work that we are not compensated with. Um, and it got to the point where um, management wasn't listening to us, um, our concerns. So we just, um, Aaron was approached by um, someone with the Starbucks United and we kind of banded together very, very early on, probably within the first two to three weeks of opening the store and slowly but surely working together to see what we can do with numbers and um, uh, work together to make our store safer, um, better and a much more um, happy place for the partners there. Great. And so, Hal, um, tell us a bit about management's reaction since you filed your election paperwork on Friday. Have they reacted at all? If so, how? Um, yes. Uh, I specifically have been public enemy number one, being one of the most outspoken members of our organizing committee. Um, so Friday we filed, and Friday and Saturday I was off the schedule, but I decided to come in to show my support. I wore my T-shirt hung out with some of my partners just to like show support for this big news. Um, management was very obviously uncomfortable with our presence just in the lounge area. They seemed tense, um, frustrated, and barely even recognized us at the store, despite even the night before me being praised as the partner of the quarter, which is a great acknowledgement of hard work at our store. Um, that being said, Sunday, I decided to wear my Starbucks Workers United t-shirt as it is federally protected under the National Labor Relations Act, as well as almost bare, like barely passing the dress code. Um, our dress code was incredibly lax up until that point. 
I was pulled back into the office three times by my assistant manager. She informed me that um, what my, what I was wearing was out of dress code um, and that if I were to wear it again, um, I would be sent home and written up um, again from it was day to night. The, the treatment I was given Thursday, I was recognized as the most prized partner at our store, all this hard work I had done. And then Sunday after filing, I was being pulled back by management. The day after Monday, I was pulled back into a private conversation with my manager. And she had informed me that this conversation was only about the dress code, not about anything else. And um, basically told me that what I was doing was not against was, was against the Starbucks policy. And I'm not allowed to wear my um, Starbucks United t-shirt. It's a too large of a graphic. Despite that, um, there are several other partners, um, um, quote unquote, um, not following the, de- the dress code policy. Even today, I noticed a partner wearing a graphic t-shirt with a similarly large logo, um, but because it wasn't representing Starbucks United or any sort of union support, she was not coached. She was not brought in the back. She did not have a private conversation. Um, there have been a lot of instances of targeted retaliation that management continues to say is only out of policy. Right. Now we're going to be able to go up to the half hour here at 5.30. So a uh, couple more questions. Um, I mean, what you're describing uh, going from uh, partner, uh, best partner of the past quarter to uh, Pariah um, brings to mind that uh, Starbucks has conducted a scorched earth anti-union campaign that has included firing uh, roughly 120 worker organizers, harassing countless others, and in some cases, even closing whole stores. Uh, and this has all happened while the Starbucks uh, Workers United Union has managed to successfully unionize more than 250 stores across the country. So it's quite a battle that's going on. Um, what, uh, Hal and, and Grayson, why didn't uh, Starbucks' very aggressive anti-union tactics uh, discourage you all from uh, doing what you're doing? Um, well, for me personally, uh, I believe that our message is more important than my individual job. Uh, there's something wrong with the way that labor is run in our country. Um, when the, you know, the old saying that the boss makes a dollar and I make a dime, it's never been more true. Um, and I, be- I believed that by unionizing and, um, basically catching on to this huge uh, surge, surging of labor movement, uh, we'd be able to make a difference and make a change in a positive direction. And I didn't think that was possible unless we unionized. And um, for me, that mattered more to me than keeping this job. And how? Um, I think that you can see our, um, sorry, <laughs> The time is getting me nervous. Um, yeah, it's really important for our store as not only Amazon Go and Starbucks. It's just like the roastery that um, unionized down the block. They are specialized workers. That's why we have a very spe- um, special place in this labor movement, because we are not as easily replaceable as other Starbucks workers. If we were to do a movement such as a strike, if we were to do anything, they can't just fire us. They can't just um, knock us down because we are specialized workers, again, not being compensated 
compensated for that specialized work. That's why we have such a special leverage as long as, as well as being a part of um, the Times building. Um, we have a lot of great connections with um, media as we are here today. And that's Starbucks's number one thing is they love their image and they need to be um, exposed for this unfair labor practices, these union busting techniques, and this scares them the most. Right. And we have to uh, go here in, in 20 seconds, but what's, what comes next? Uh, do you, when do you all get an election date uh, from the National Labor Relations Board? Hopefully that in still months. to be determined? Yeah, to be determined, but hopefully um, the estimate is generally an average of two months after filing. Okay, well, uh, we certainly wish you all the uh, the best as you go through this uh, process and, and yes. endure whatever management uh, decides to throw at you. But how about us and Grayson Lee uh, from Starbucks Workers United and from the Starbucks pickup Amazon Go store in Times Square, uh, now unionizing. Thank you so much for joining us this evening on WBAI Radio. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you solidarity we're gonna go do a quick music break and we'll be right back with more as soon as you're born they make you feel small by giving you no time instead of it all Till the pain is so big you feel nothing at all A working class hero is something to be A working class hero is something to be They hurt you at home and they hit you at school They hate you if you're clever And they despise a fool Till you're so crazy You can't follow their rules A working class hero Is something to be A working class hero Is something to be that was Working Class Hero by John Lennon on his solo album, which came out after the Beatles um, broke up. To highly encourage, listen. That was with Yoko Ono. You're listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM. I am your host, your host, Amba Gargarian, joined by my co-host, John Tarleton. Before we continue to our last segment, we are going to encourage you to support this show and this station to stay on air. WBAI is New York City's and the greater New York region. So we go into Long Island um, and Westchester, Rockland County, parts of Jersey. We are the only independent, truly independent radio station out there. That means that corporations and billionaires cannot control what we say. Um, 90% of media is corporate media. So please keep us as a part of that 10%. Support the show on the air. We are listener supported. That is how we make our money. You can give a donation, 5, 10, 25, 200 if you can afford it, by calling 212 209 
212-209-2950. That phone number is 212-209-2950. If you prefer, you can go online to give the number to WBAI.org. Again, that's give the number to WBAI.org. The importance of supporting independent media in the current political climate is greater than ever. And I say that in full force. So please help us stay on air. Call that phone number. It's 212-209-2950, 212-209-2950, or online at give, the number 2, WBAI.org. That's right, 212-209-2950, or give, number 2, WBAI.org. When you give to this station, you make it possible for us to bring forward voices like Grayson Lee and how about just the Starbucks worker union organizers we just heard from courageously taking on one of the wealthiest, actually two of the wealthiest corporations uh, yeah. in this country at the same time uh, with their union uh, organizing that they've been doing at their workplace. In a few minutes, we're going to hear from a community organizer in Sunset Park as part of a group that's really doing some uh, groundbreaking work there to strengthen their community. And we're going to hear about what they're doing, and they're going to be able to share uh, their story uh, with all our, our listeners here in the five boroughs and in uh, the the suburbs outside of uh, New York City that our signal reaches uh, on Long Island, up into the Hudson River Valley, all the way over into New Jersey. But it's only possible with the support of our listeners, of listeners like you, 212-209-2950, or give number two, WBAI.org. And one of the best ways you can give is to become a WBAI buddy for as little as $10 a month. And, and I mean, you not only get a, a variety of uh, perks for becoming uh, a, a WBAI buddy, uh, but of course you get uh, the good uh, vibrations, the good feeling of knowing you're supporting this station uh, a little bit at a time every month and keeping uh these voices on the air and Ambas, something I couldn't help but think about uh, was with the sale of, of uh, Twitter to Elon Musk. There's been all of this uh, wailing and, and lamentation that, you know, such a, a, a vital sort of a public square uh, that's used by hundreds of millions of people is now in the hands of one man whose net worth is over $200 billion. Uh, you know, there's plenty of other examples in corporate media of uh, similar uh, problems. Mark Zuckerberg and his uh, dominance over Facebook, uh, Jeff Bezos, uh, the Amazon uh, corporate overlord who also owns the Washington Post, and so many other examples of this. But obviously, the Twitter uh, saga has uh, caught a lot of people's attention. So, one thing we can do is make sure and support independent media like WBAI, like the Independent for that matter, uh, and it takes our listeners, readers uh, to do that. That's why we're asking uh, anyone who can do so to please consider calling 212-209-2950 or pull out the plastic and, and go to give number two, WBAI.org. Right. And if, if you've never donated because you think somebody else is, or if you haven't donated in a while, today's your day. 212-209-2950 or give number two WBAI.org. Thank you for supporting us. So now we're going to move into our third segment. And we have our third segment guest 
Um, here, here we go. Great. Okay. So Mexicanos Unidos is a politically and community oriented group in Sunset Park, Brooklyn, working to develop a critical collective social consciousness for the Mexican community. The group was formed by mostly young Mexican Americans living in Sunset Park as a part of the George Floyd uprising in 2020, which is very interesting because there were quite a few, um, militant, um, community oriented, um, really committed groups uh, started by mostly young protesters, pro protesters at that time. So just remember, folks, the George Floyd uprising may have not had a ton of legal effects, but it did have effects on organizing in the city. So with Mexicanos Unidos, which is one of one of those groups that formed at that time, um, they have been hosting since last spring a weekly unpermitted open air market with vendors of all kinds in Sunset Park, in the park itself, called Plaza Tonatia. Sunday was the last day of this year's plaza with 88 vendors there, tons of people, kids, all ages, family members. Honestly, it, it feels like an open-air market in Mexico City. It's incredible. There's plata, there's silver, there's tons of food, there's toys, there's things you need for your house, clothes, etc. And And on Sunday, with the last day, there was live music and Day of the Dead celebrations into the night. It is a, a beautiful thing there in Sunset Park. So we are very excited to have Leo, a founding member of Mexicanos Unidos, here to talk with us today. Leo, welcome to the show. Thank you, Amba. I appreciate you inviting us on again. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so tell us about how Mexicanos Unidos was formed um, and, and then the work that the, the group does. Yeah, it was formed um, during, like, as you mentioned, during the George Floyd uprising. Um, had a lot to do with also what happened around that same time with Vanessa Guillen um, and the, the consciousness that, that grew out of that. Um, but was also, we wanted to direct those mainly nationalistic tendencies towards something more revolutionary, more organized with a, a collective of like, also understanding that in New York City is not just the Mexican diaspora. It's also, we have a large Caribbean diaspora, a large Asian diaspora, mm-hmm. a large Central American diaspora, mm-hmm. South American diaspora. This is such a truly, truly, truly a melting pot. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so we wanted to like, um, make folks understand that our liberation is tied to the liberation of others. Right. And we'll talk more about the plaza that you've been organizing, but tell us a little bit about the work that you do outside of the plaza and some of the political education you have coming up and why that's so important. Yeah, we started that honestly through, um, well, right now we're about to start doing more political education classes. Um, that is also derived um, out of what we deem as a necessity also. Um, and we're doing that with the plaza participants first. Um, it's a way for us to get also unity and thought, um, cause we already have unity in action. Um, so the political education classes is something that we've, um, deemed kind of necessary as something that we've also been doing internally, um, with the members that are coming in. Um, and that's really, but, yeah. We'll spend that internal time. Sorry to interrupt you, but that internal organizing time, you know, is uh, from someone who surveys groups a lot. That, that's important. So I commend you on that. But tell us a little bit about what political education looks like. I mean, you know, you're not going to go all the way into it, but but what is someone going to experience? Yeah, I mean, I can like relate that the the, the basic course for us um, consists of the five golden rays by Mao. It consists of stay in revolution by Lenin. It consists of the pedagogy of the oppressed by Paulo Fieri. Um, Wretched of the Earth by uh, Frantz Fanon, and and we also include 
excerpts from Open Veins in Latin America by Eduardo Galeano. So that's kind of what um what our basic course uh stands with stands uh what is upholding right now. Um we have like advanced courses too that that consist of like readings on George Jackson and more like Black Panther stuff. Um but you know we start with the five golden rays because we believe people should have the right attitude when they come to this type of organizing because we also understand everybody comes with different types of backgrounds different experiences, different education levels. But as long as we all have that same attitude of like, we're going to stand by any criticism we get, but also do self-criticism ourselves. That's why we start with the basic attitude. Um, but that's, that's, we, it's, it's really, really, truly, truly the glue to our organization and to, the glue to us having unity in the face of oppression. And, and have y'all done, done these uh, classes before? And, and what was your experience as far as how, uh, people received uh, what you were sharing and if you felt like they were, uh, you know, uh, really taking it to heart. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Honestly, we, 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 we are learning. Um, we also, that's also why we include the Paulo Fieri in this so that people understand that like, we're, we're not like teachers We're we're also learning with you as students um, mm. in what we're doing. Um, but yeah, we've, we've done it. Um it's been successful so far, I would say, uh, in terms of retention. Um, we've seen the beginning members after going through the study have been, we see the change in mentality and also it, it, it the change in commitment to what we're doing, um, is different. But, um, some folks, some folks retain it a lot faster than others. Uh, again, to, to ask folks to study it on their own time while they're also working class people, we also understand that like not everybody has time to read. Um, and not everybody can read. Um, now we're dealing with a lot of plaza participants. So a lot of our, this, a lot of our learning is done mainly through discussions. Um, so we learn together. Um, we, some of it is good. Some of it is bad, but we deal with it together. Um, right. Yeah. And, and um, uh, just circling back to uh, Plaza uh, Tanatia, what was the inspiration for that? And how do you feel like that in itself has, has bolstered your community as well as your organizing? For sure. I mean, I think there were a lot of inspirations for it. Honestly, I would have to say one of the main ones was uh, Chicano Park. I was out in the West Coast in San Diego and also the other Chicano Parks, the Raza Park that goes on in Colorado. These mm. are just like cultural land, like cultural pillars and communities that help with the resistance movements. Um, so that's one of them. Uh, another inspiration was honestly a motivation, I would say, was Industry City. Honestly, um, in the sense that we were saw like this, uh, just a gentrifying entity coming into Sunset Park. And now we have this, like this whole, I mean, and we see it now in the Bronx with like Sobro and this like changing of names of communities that have been long, long time poor. Um, so for us, there's a lot of inspiration, a lot of motivation. Um, the, 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 the homicides and the robberies of, of street vendors, um, the, the dumping of their, of their property by people by them might be by the viral videos that we've seen on 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 instagram tiktok you know where the parks enforcement is dumping people's property nypd is ticketing mango ladies uh, ladies selling mango on the train all of those things we use as as a as like fuel for our fire um but yeah right and 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 um to give a little context to the ticketing of street vendors i mean there's a lot there um but a lot of that has to do with real estate right because they want people to be in brick and mortar buildings paying rent and real estate runs the city. But um, 
<clears throat> so tell us about how frequently the plaza happens and um, how people can get involved. Do they sign up? Is it permitted? Um, you know, I think it's pretty incredible that you went from having 25 vendors at the end of last year's plazas to 88 on Sunday. So talk about the organization of it and how people get involved. Yeah, um, mainly up until this point, we've been asking folks to come talk to us in person um, at the plaza every Sunday. But now since we've um, shut it down for the year, we're also looking to, to try to get a space, honestly, so we can try to have a community center in Sunset Park where people can come and make it more accessible for them to volunteer, for them to, because um, we do get a lot of folks who are like, yeah, I'm an ESL teacher and I would love to help out with any English classes. But for all that type of stuff, we need to do more like, logistical organizing um in the sense of like trying to get a space for all of that but in terms of volunteering volunteering I'm, i recommend people reach out to mexicanos unidos on instagram um i know we have a couple people who monitor it um sometimes it, it gets difficult especially like after a day like sunday when we have so many people reaching out um but we definitely definitely we definitely try to reach back out mexicanos ex unidos mexicanos ex unidos at gmail.com is also another place for people to email um, to do some work together. Right. And we were talking earlier in our uh, show today about the situation in, in, in Brazil, uh, where a broad coalition of, of, uh, voters managed to turn, uh, turn out the, uh, neo-fascist, uh, president there in favor of, uh, former union leader Lula da Silva. Um, and one of the, uh, five rays of, uh, uh, uh light that you all, uh, uh, focus on in, in your popular education is uh, the great uh, Brazilian educator, Paulo uh, Freire. Uh, can you talk a little bit uh, uh, more about who Freire uh, was and, and uh, what he, uh, he brought forward in the pedagogy of the oppressed? Right. Talk about popular education. I, w- I was going to bring that back up too, because this is a great um, thing to be thinking about. Thanks, Leo. Yeah. Um, I mean, for us, that really has to do with the communion between like, uh, the people who are learning and the people who are trying to teach. Um, and again, we try not even to use the word teach um, because of Paulo Fierri, because he tries to like also um, blur that line. He blurs that line a lot more. But for us, um, Paulo Fierri, and, and to be honest with you, it goes back to the fact that he's basing his, what he's doing is based on science. Um, it's not necessarily based on like, personal experience or any, it is based on his personal experience, but it's based on how he applied science. Um, and again, like, um, and, and, and the reason why also we, we use those five is because Paulo Fieri, he even talks about France Fanon in his writing, um, and how important that was to understand Fanon and the, and the psychology behind a colonial mind. Um, but for us, honestly, the, the, that pedagogy, ped, pedagogy is so important because we are the oppressed and we try to explain to folks that the, the pedagogy, pedagogy that they need will never be given to them by the oppressor. Um, so I feel like that was one of the main things for us, why we felt the need to include that in our basic course. And, and Freire, as, as I recall, was a educator who worked closely with a, a Brazilian peasant groups and, and right. others who didn't have much, if any, formal education, but I mean, he not only brought his knowledge to them, but he found uh, repeatedly that he was learning at least as much from the people he had come to teach. And that's that's exactly. what uh, really inspired uh, this book. He was uh, 
I think the book came out around 1964. Um, I don't think he's alive anymore, but obviously his uh, work and his uh, vision lives on. Yeah, and you also have um, one of your five as Eduardo Galeano, Open Veins of Latin America, Venas Abiertas de América Latina. Incredible book, difficult book to get through, but if you can even read excerpts of that book, that reworks and really opens your mind about society. If you can look back at colonization and study everything, you'll never look back. So if, if any of our listeners want to read any of your five ways too, I, I encourage it. But, but uh, back to Mexicanos Unidos. So, so I mentioned earlier that, that you formed during the George Floyd uprising, um, sort of as a part of it. Uh, there were tens of thousands of people in the street at that time. I was out on the street on May 29th, the first day, a spontaneous protest, cat and dog chase with the cops, you know, in Union Square, bloody running around. The cops were totally disorganized. So were we. Um, and uh, my friend got arrested for writing chalk on the wall. And then we were out all summer protesting. And, you know, I we had one uh, uh, sort of police analyst, uh, uh, Alex Vitale, say something that rang really true to me when I was writing an article on this, which was that we didn't see a lot of legal or substantial change with the way the NYPD works in the New York City in that protest against police violence. They're funded more than ever now, right? He says that a big reason because of that was because the organizing network in New York City was not well sustained. It wasn't really there. When everyone ran into the street, it was great and spontaneous, but there wasn't a lot of sort of like really committed, well-organized, internally educated groups. And those are now forming. So can you talk about that and Mexicanos Unidos place in that and working with these other groups and what you see for sort of organizing in the city as everything becomes more tense, especially in Sunset Park, which is one of the most, you know, quickly gentrifying neighborhoods right now. You really feel it there. Sorry, yeah, for sure. No, I appreciate you. That's a great question, honestly, and so important for the organizing work, because as you mentioned before, we were doing like Bergen County protests back in like 2021. We were like also doing the I mean, that was ICE protests against ICE getting we yes. brought Ryan back on it then uh, getting brutally, brutally beat up by New Jersey cops. Um, yes. Yeah. That, and yes, exactly. And that was and, and so it's important to understand that because we also realized how unsustainable that was, um, yeah. how burnout was so prevalent, yeah. especially around organizers. And honestly, one of the big things for us was, and goes back to the political education and why study is so important. But we, all, I remember watching a video by Kwame Ture where he, he mentions the difference between mobilizations and organization. And that's why we, that for us was like a moment for us to like sit back. And that's why we started to base build in Sunset Park and do Plaza Tonatiu and stay somewhere consistently. Um, and just build here, honestly, because that's when we started to organize. I, I recognize that like during 2021 and parts of 2021, we were still just heavy on the mobilizing. And it was just that we never really organized because nobody ever pulled out a clipboard while we were marching and, you know, ask people what they can contribute or ask people what they have or ask people where they're at and how can we organize to defeat this monster that is like has its body all across um, North America. Right. And what you're describing also uh, uh, provides a reminder uh, in organizing that being able to offer people a, a vision of the positive of what they right. want it, it is so crucial. It can't just all be about protests or even uh, right. you know, self-education, but the things like the plaza give people uh, a vision that they can get excited about. Mm. 
Yes, and one of our main that's that's also why we love Franz Fanon because one of his in his long book of Wretched of the Earth he mentions about why dancing and why all of this is so important for the oppressed because we get to shake all that oppression out of us and we get to like not have to use horizontal violence onto each other in the streets but now we can dance together and and shake all of these things out of our body and that's really what this past day of the dead celebration really was was a moment for that um you're right and you know um uh you can feel that when you're there you can feel that this is like a version of of what like communal support and society could look like so creating more of that space and taking up public space unpermitted is incredible and we encourage you guys to keep doing what you're doing so if you want to get in touch with mexicanos unidos you can go to mexicanos x unidos on instagram m-e-x-i-c-a-n-o-s x u-n-i-d-o-s on uh instagram and you said it's the same thing for gmail same thing on gmail yeah Mexicanos Exunidos at gmail.com. Leo, thank you so much for joining us. We thank you for having me, y'all. Always a pleasure. Appreciate it. Absolutely. We look forward to talking to you again soon. And yes. we'd like to thank uh, Nina Louisa Leonard, Regina Bueno, uh, Reggie Johnson, our sound engineer, uh, for helping us out with this show. And we're going to leave you. Wait, what, 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 wait, one more thing. Just a reminder, oh, okay. our election night special next Tuesday. Special. 5 to 10 p.m. right here on WBAI Independent News Hour Special Edition. And what's that uh, music we're going to leave with today? Yes, please tune in next Tuesday, next Tuesday, 5 to 10 p.m. I'm a sucker for Nina Simone, if any of our listeners have been following. This is I Shall Be Released, um, a cover uh, by Nina Simone. Yeah.